Well, this is the second video in a series of videos whereby we are going through the Gospel of John. The first of which was an introduction video wherein I wanted to answer three main questions. Who wrote it? When was it written? And why was it written? This video, on the other hand, is actually going to take us into the text of Scripture. And with this video, we are going to begin working through the Gospel of John, verse by verse by verse. And I hope that these videos are as beneficial to you listening and learning as they have been to me, as I have been studying and researching and praying and meditating upon the Scriptures to learn for myself. Uh, and that being said, I am just going to pray for us so that we can hop right in. Dear Lord, as we go into your word, I pray that your spirit will be present with us. I pray that you will uh, anoint me so that I will speak only what you would have me say. And if I say anything incorrectly, I pray that you will allow me to be corrected and accept that, correcting, that correction willingly and graciously. God, I pray that you will open up the ears of everybody who is listening right now, who is hearing this message, and I pray that through it they will be drawn closer to you and drawn further into the satisfaction of knowing who you are. God, I love you so much. We love you so much. And we give this time to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, uh, last video we talked about how the purpose of John is twofold. On one end, he is wanting to teach us the nature of saving faith. What is true belief? Genuine belief versus superficial belief. What's the difference? And we're going to see that throughout the course of the gospel. But the second aspect of the Gospel of John, of the purpose behind the Gospel of John, is what we're really going to focus on today. And that is the identity of Christ. John wants us to leave his Gospel knowing for certain that Jesus is the Son of God and is God himself in the flesh. And so, John's going to make that known to us. And there's probably no other place in the Gospel of John where that is more clearly stated than in the passage we are going through today which is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. So if you'll flip there, or if you're just listening to this while driving down the road, if you'll just listen. This is John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The way you begin a story makes all the difference in the world. If you begin a story badly, nobody will care and nobody wants to pay attention. If you begin a story well, you'll captivate your audience and draw them in. Whenever you read Harry Potter, how does it start out? It starts out on a mysterious street with some cat roaming around and some man showing up and then a person in a motorbike and they're delivering this child to a house. And then all of a sudden it fast forwards 11 years later to a young man in a cupboard underneath the stairs. And you're intrigued, you're confused. What's going on here? You want to know more. Whenever you get to the first Star Wars movie, 
You start with this galactic space battle and this princess who's fleeing for her life trying to preserve something important. And then it cuts to some man on a desert planet looking for something to stand for, something to give him meaning. The way you start a story is very significant. And it teaches you not only about the author, but about the story itself, about the characters, about who's doing what, about what we should care about as an audience. And so that raises the question, how do you begin to tell the story of Jesus Christ? And that's what I love about the Gospels, because each of the Gospel authors has a different answer for that question because each of the Gospels presents Jesus in a different way. They're all unified and they're all telling the same story, but each of them has a different focus. That's why we have four Gospels. You see, Matthew seems to be presenting Jesus as the King of Israel, as the Messiah. And Mark seems to be presenting Jesus as the suffering servant who served faithfully to the end. Luke is presenting Jesus as the man, right? As the Son of Man who came into the world. But then God, uh, John, he is wanting to present Jesus as God, right? And so all of the four Gospels present each of these aspects of Jesus. Each of them just has different focuses to emphasize one over the other. And so each one is going to start in a different way. Matthew, presenting Jesus as king, decides to begin the story at the beginning of Israel, the messianic line. Right? And so what he does is his whole gospel begins with a genealogy. And it begins tracing from Jesus to Abraham. Well, actually from Abraham to Jesus. Right? So what we have there is we actually have the messianic line to prove that Jesus is the king. Mark, however, wants to present Jesus as the servant. So we just want to see what Jesus does. Because that's what we care about servanthood. We don't care about genealogies. So what Mark does, within the first chapter, you get the ministry of Jesus, right? You go through the ministry of John the Baptist. You land in the ministry of Jesus. Within the first chapter, you already get to his baptism and his temptation, and he is well on his way, right? So that's where Mark focuses. Luke, he's focusing on Jesus as the man. And so whenever we get to the genealogy in Luke, he's not just going back to Abraham. He's going back to Adam. He's wanting to start with the beginning of the human race and show how Jesus is a man. Right? He is descended from men. And that's why with him, he'll also start by focusing more on Jesus' birth. Right? He'll focus on the announcement and the birth of John the Baptist, and then the announcement and the birth of Jesus. And so we have these different focuses. Matthew, presenting Jesus as king, goes to the beginning of Israel. Mark, presenting Jesus as the servant, goes to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Luke, presenting Jesus as the man, goes to the beginning of mankind. But John wants to present Jesus as God. And so the only place John can rationalize to begin his story is at the beginning of time. For John, the only appropriate place to begin the story of Jesus is at the beginning of all things. For John wants us to recognize that Jesus was the author of all things who existed before all things. That's why he begins by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Thus, he begins by taking us back to the beginning of time, alluding to the introductory words of the Hebrew Scriptures, or what we would know as the Old Testament. Because this is what Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. You see, John is beginning his gospel at the beginning of history as we know it. He says, where do I start the story of Jesus? I have to go to the beginning of time because that's the only place where it makes sense because John wants us to recognize that this story did not begin with just a man being born in a stable. It began when the universe came into existence. Notice the tense of the verb there. When it says, in the beginning was the word. John is saying, go back to the very beginning of time. In the beginning, as far back as mankind can think. In the beginning, the word already was. Right? So he was already existing there. As far back as man can fathom, the word already existed. Even at the beginning of creation, the word already was. In Greek, this is the verb ami. Well, it's a, it's a, a tense of the verb ami. Uh, it's, it's the verb ami, and it's in the imperfect tense, describing continuing action in the past. Right? We don't really have that in English. Um, you have traces of it. But... It's continuing action in the past. So what John is saying is that as far back as time can go, the word was already existing. So go back to the beginning of humankind, the beginning of time in and of itself. Before there was time, space, and matter, the word, whoever that is, he hasn't gotten there yet, the word already was existing. He pre-existed time. The word then, whoever the word is, is not a created being. But rather, he has existed for all eternity. There was never a point where he came into a being. He just existed even before the beginning of creation. And so that raises a question. What does John mean by the word? Because you see, this is the only place where Jesus is actually called that. Right? John's not actually going to call Jesus the Word in the rest of the Gospel. This is where he introduces Jesus, and we have to understand why is he calling Jesus the Word? Because we will see, um, not necessarily in this lesson, because he doesn't get to it here, but in the prologue of John, which is the first 18 verses, he is going to identify the Word as being Jesus Christ. But why does he call Jesus the Word, and why doesn't he just call him Jesus? Well, since we're talking about Jesus before he came into the world, we can't exactly call him Jesus. Because that was a name that was given to him when he was born to Mary and Joseph. They named him Jesus. And so we can call him that now because ever since he was born, he's had that name, right? He lived a life. He died. He rose back up. He ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. We can call him Jesus right now. But prior to him being born, his name wasn't Jesus, right? That was a name he was given. So John, he can't call him that yet. Instead, he has to call him something that encapsulates who Jesus is and identifies him as Jesus Christ without giving him that name. And so what he calls him is the Word. In Greek, that is the term logos. And the cool thing about this is that logos was actually a concept both in Greek and in Jewish thought, and what John seems to be doing is actually correcting both of those ideas to give us a true idea of what the logos is, what the word is. So let's talk about the Greeks, right? The Greeks, they had their version of what is the logos. There was this philosophical concept of logos, of the word, and people like um, Plato and Heraclitus, they talked a lot about the logos, and they had the 
various different opinions about it. There's like the idea of the Logos, lowercase l, and Logos, capital L. Um, basically, um, Logos, little l, that would basically just be words, how you speak, the things you say. But what we're talking about is the Logos, right? The Word, capital W, capital L for Logos. That's what we're talking about. And for the Greeks, the Logos was the divine law of the cosmos, the impersonal, abstract principle of reason and order in the universe, an agent of creation and the source of all wisdom. So the Logos was this principle. It was this divine principle that governed all the universe. It was the intersection between deity and humanity. And what I mean by that is that the Greeks, they had this idea that deity and humanity, they couldn't interact with each other, right? The divine and human kind, they couldn't interact in the same way of becoming one another. They couldn't just go back and forth like that, right? So what they had was the idea of the logos, wherein the lowest deity could go was to reveal itself as a principle, right? So that was the lowest that gods, the deities, that's the lowest they could go. They could reveal themselves as principles, but they couldn't actually descend down to becoming humans. On the other hand, humans could only go so far up as to understand that divine principle of the gods, of the deities, right? So the logos was like the intersection between man and God where man could only hope to ascend up to understanding the Logos, the divine principle that governed the universe, whereas the deities could only descend so far as to reveal that principle to mankind. And so that's what the Greeks meant by the Logos. The Jews, on the other hand, people like Philo, or even in the Bible, um, they had a little bit of a different perspective on what the Logos was, right? They started speaking Greek, and they started using the same term um, and putting their own nuance to it, to differentiate it from the Greek term. To the Jews, the word, or the logos, was a way to refer to God, demonstrating God's active and personal involvement in the world. The word of the Lord was the expression of divine power and wisdom. We see this throughout the Old Testament. When you look at the Old Testament, you have the word of the Lord having power with it, and that's how God does things. Whenever you have God creating, how does he do it? He speaks. Let there be light. And he saw that there was light and it was good, right? So God speaks and things happen. The word of the Lord represents God's creative power. It's him and his action. In fact, Philo himself, uh, that's a Jewish philosopher, Philo, he said that the Logos was the image of God, an angel of the Lord who was instrumental in creating the universe. So Philo had different views of what the Logos was, but the general principle was that the Logos was some sort of angel of the Lord, or perhaps the very image of God itself, um, and somehow he helped create the universe. And you can read more on that. I'm not going to dive into it too deeply, or else this would be a very, very, very long video. But there's different perspectives of what the Logos was. What is the Word? So basically, describing Jesus as the Word, John's accomplishing two things. In a way, he's correcting both perspectives. Right? So to the Greeks, he's presenting Jesus as the source of all wisdom, power, and creative ability, who is the mediator between God and man. He's the one in between. Right? To the Jews, on the other hand, he is presenting Jesus as the incarnation of divine power and revelation as God made flesh. If to the Jews, the word was God and the image of God and God's creative ability, 
calling Jesus the Word is saying that Jesus is God and is everything that God uses to create things. That's a big deal. And so what John's doing here is actually, he's not accepting the Jewish perspective and he's not accepting the Greek perspective, but he's really conflating the two and creating his own new definition of the Logos. What we're going to see here is that, especially in this prologue, in the first 18 verses of John, he is going to present the Word as six different things that are really crucial to our understanding of who Jesus is. And I didn't create this list. I actually took it uh, and adapted it from a guy named Arnold Fruchtenbaum. I just want to give credit where credit's due. Um, But this is his list of what John presents Jesus as in the prologue. Firstly, the Word is distinct from God, but the same as God. He's distinct, but the same as God. Secondly, he is the agent of all creation. He is the reason why all things came into being. Thirdly, he is the agent of all salvation. Right? So not only did he create everything, but he is the way that things and people get saved. Fourthly, he's the agent of revelation. He's the one who reveals God to people. Fifthly, he is the means by which God became visible. This is the idea of him him being the image of God. God made flesh. People see the word and they can see God. Sixthly, the word is the means by which God signed and sealed his covenants. Right? So God has made a lot of covenants with mankind. Um, You see a lot of them in the Old Testament. Whenever Jesus comes in the flesh... He demonstrates that he is the one who is signing and sealing these covenants, and he brings with him a new covenant, which we get to rejoice in. But that's just the first phrase of the first verse. In the beginning was the Word. John goes on to say, and the Word was with God. Right? So not only did the non-created Word exist prior to creation, but he existed alongside God, which is interesting, right? So when nothing but God existed, the Word was already with God. I'll say that again. Nothing but God existed, but the Word was with God. This goes back to the point I was saying at the beginning, or not at the beginning, just a few seconds ago. He is the same as God, Yet he is distinct from God. Somehow, only God exists, yet the Word exists with God. It paints the picture of two persons engaging with one another in an intimate relationship. Right? So even before anything else existed, in the very beginning, the Word is here and God is here. And they're with each other. That's what John is painting the Word, painting Jesus as. And then not only was he there, and not only was he there with God, but in the beginning, the Word was God. Let that settle in for a second, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, that should probably blow your mind, because he just said that the Word was with God, but now the Word is God? That's confusing, and it should be confusing. Because here we have it stated quite plainly that whoever this word figure is, as we will see, it's Jesus. Whoever this word figure is, he is God, and he has been God ever since the beginning of time. 
Not only was the Word in the beginning, not only was the Word with God in the beginning, but the Word himself from the very, very beginning was God. The Word then is somehow distinct from God, yet he is the same as God. We are only one verse in and your mind should already be blown. We are only one verse in, yet we have the deity of Christ affirmed three times. And as we're going to see in the first four verses, he's going to be confirmed as the deity eight times. But just in this first verse, we have it three times, right? In the beginning, when nothing had been created, the word already was, which makes him God. In the beginning, when only God existed, the word was already with God, which makes him God. In the beginning, when nothing had yet been created and only God existed, the Word was God. Right there in the first verse, we have three confirmations that the Word, Jesus Christ, is God. And in case you still missed it, John restates it again in verse 2, just to be as clear as possible. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in case you didn't get it there, he goes on to say, he was in the beginning with God. John is going out of his way to state it as clearly as possible so you don't miss the point. In the beginning, the Word was. In the beginning, the Word was with God. In the beginning, the Word was God. In the beginning, he was with God, right? He was with God in the beginning. John does not want us to miss this point. In two verses, he has stated it four times, so that we will know that he is abundantly and proudly and confidently declaring that Jesus Christ, the Word of God, is God in the flesh. Nevertheless, there are some people who will argue even to this day that the Bible doesn't claim that Jesus is God, despite the fact that in this very gospel, in chapter 20, after the resurrection of Jesus, doubting Thomas himself falls to his knees and proclaims to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Despite that, and despite this chapter, and despite all the evident proclamations in Scripture that Jesus is God, there are some who will use chapter 1, verse 1, to claim that the Bible asserts that Jesus was not God. Almost from the moment John wrote these words, people have pointed out that the word for God at the end of verse 1, theos in halagos in Greek, is an arthris not preceded by a definite article. Right? So their argument is that at the end of verse 1, whenever it says, and the word was God, the Greek phrase is theos in halagos, which if I translated that roughly in order, it would say God was the word, right? But the reason why, as we'll see, is important. But they'll point out, well, hey, look, it doesn't say ha theos in halagos, which would mean the God was the word, right? So, like, obviously, it could just mean a God, right? Maybe they're saying that the word was a God, right? The word was divine. That's what their argument would be. They would say, it's not claiming that the word was the one true God, the word was a God. He was divine in some way, but he wasn't the one true God. That's what their argument would be, and that's what their argument has been since the beginning of this gospel. However, lacking a definite article does not automatically make the term indefinite. Even in this passage, 
later on, there are places where the term God is not preceded by a definite article, yet it's obvious that it's talking about the one true God. For instance, in verse 6, you're going to see that there was a man, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, whenever you read that, you obviously know that he was not sent from a God. He was sent from the God. You don't have to put the word the in front of it to clarify who God is. In the same way, whenever I pray, I don't say, oh, dear the God. You don't have to do that. I say, dear God, you don't have to proceed it that way. But in case you're doubting, let me help clarify it even some more. Logos has the definite article to show that it is the subject of the sentence, whereas God is the direct object. So right, whenever I was saying the Greek phrase there, theos in halagos, the reason why logos, um, the word, why that has the definite article before it, the word the, the reason that's there is because in Greek, that is demonstrating that this is the subject of the sentence. Because there's different definite articles depending on the placement of a word in a sentence. So it demonstrates that the logos is the subject, n is the verb, and theos is actually the direct object, the predicate nominative. Right? So, sorry, this is a lot of just grammar stuff, but I want to give you this information so that you know that we have good reason to believe that what John is asserting here is what I am claiming he's asserting. Right? So the reason why Logos has the definite article in front of it is because it demonstrates that that is the subject of the sentence. And that is actually very important. Because you'll notice how I was translating it earlier whenever I said the God was the word would actually contradict the point that John is trying to make here. Because John is wanting to demonstrate that the word is the same as God yet distinct from God. So if we had the phrase, the God was the Word, that would suggest that God himself was entirely encapsulated by the Word. So it would make it to where there was no room for flexibility in what John is eventually leading us to, which is the concept of the Trinity. Three persons, one essence. Three persons, one God. So saying God was the Word would actually contradict what John's going for here. He has to say the Word was God to demonstrate that Jesus is God, but He's also separate from the Father, right? So that's how he can say in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because whenever he says he was with God, he's talking about he was with the Father. Whenever he said he was God, he's pointing out that he was God. Right? Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. I hope I'm clarifying that well. Rather, John's point is that Jesus was God, while not, at the same, not the same as the Father, and thus the Word has to be the subject of the sentence. If he makes God the subject of the sentence, it would confuse things, so he puts the definite article in front of Logos to demonstrate that that's the subject, and that he's claiming that the Word was God. And we actually have reason to believe that he is talking about the one singular God. And I'll give you three reasons. We can conclude that John is clearly presenting Jesus to be God for these three reasons. Firstly, according to Caldwell's rule, which is just a rule of Greek grammar um, created by people way smarter than me, according to Caldwell's rule, when the predicate nominative precedes the verb, it actually cannot be considered indefinite. Right? So whenever you have an encounter like this, at all occasions in Scripture, whenever the predicate nominative precedes the verb, 
and it doesn't have the article, it cannot be considered indefinite, which just means that you cannot say, whenever it says theos and halagos, you can't claim that that means the word was a god. It has to be definite in that structure, and that's consistent throughout all scripture and outside sources as well. That's Caldwell's rule. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because it even goes over my head a little bit. I don't know enough Greek. Second thing, the term theos appears without the definite article four other times in the prologue of John alone, verses 6, 12, 13, and 18. And each of those times, it refers to the one and only God. That's what I was saying earlier whenever I said that it talks about a man sent from God whose name was John. In that occurrence, in verse 6, God does, is not preceded by a definite article. It doesn't say ha theos. It just says theos, but we know it's talking about the one true God. And the third reason is just pretty simple. If John was trying to make a distinction between the word and the one true God, there are easier ways he could have said it to get his point across. He could have phrased it differently to make it clear and leave less ambiguity. So we should interpret this as the most straightforward reading because if not, John was just a terrible author who didn't know how to communicate. This is a very, the, the beautiful thing about the prologue of the Gospel of John is that it's in very simple Greek, which translates into very simple English, so that it can be super profound and you, it can blow your mind, but at the same time, it can be understood by even a child. And so what John's doing here is he is stating things very concisely and simply, but he wants to convey some profound truths, and that's what we're experiencing here. So... That all being said, we have good reason to believe that whenever John says that the Word was God, he is asserting that Jesus Christ is God. And thus, from the first two verses, we have not one, not two, not three, but four confirmations from the Apostle John that Jesus Christ is God himself. He was in the beginning when nothing had been created. He was with God when only God existed. He was, he was God when nothing had yet been created and only God existed. He was with God in the beginning, though God alone existed and nothing had been created. Right? Those are the first two verses. We already have four confirmations that John is trying to tell us that Jesus Christ is God. At the same time, he is presented as distinct from God, foreshadowing the concept of the Trinity, which will be fleshed out over the course of the gospel. John's going to introduce us to the Father and the Son, and then as the gospel progresses, he's going to introduce the Spirit, so that eventually we're going to realize that Father, Spirit, Son, three in one. Boom, bada boom, bada bing. That's what he's going to do for us. Uh, and it's already, it should already be blowing your mind. It blows my mind. I can't fully fathom it. I can't fully explain it. But if I could explain the almighty God with my three-pound brain, he probably wouldn't be the God that the Bible claims him to be. Uh, but John's going to begin explaining that to us over the course of the gospel. This sets things up perfectly for the next insight we receive from John in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You see, not only was the word distinct from God, whilst being the same with God, but he was the agent of all creation. All things came into existence through the word. While also giving us further insight into who Christ is as the creator of the universe, these also serve as our, four, our fifth and sixth confirmations that Jesus is himself God, given the testimony of Scripture. 
So if you go back into your Old Testament and you flip to Genesis 1.1, who is asserted as being the creator of the universe? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, this is what it says. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Once again, Isaiah is asserting God, not man, not the word. God is the creator of the universe. Okay. Then if you go a few chapters later, Isaiah 45, 18, we read this. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God. In case you were wondering, the Lord who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Right, so right there in Isaiah, we have God who is the creator of the universe, and he specifies, I am the Lord, there is no other. There's no other God, there's no side God, there's no smaller God, there's no other God than me, and I created the universe. Yet right here, John is saying that through the word, all things were created. And interestingly, in the book of Revelation, which was also written by the apostle John, we have this in Revelation 4 verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is one of the songs that is being sung in heaven. And John himself acknowledges that that is a song being sung in heaven. Wherein they are proclaiming that God alone is the creator of the universe. Yet right here in the Gospel of John, the same author is asserting that the Word created the universe. Which means that John is asserting, once again, that the Word is God. And I mentioned that we have our fifth and our sixth proclamations here. So let me run through them again. Firstly, we had, He was in the beginning when nothing had yet been created. Secondly, He was with God when only God existed. Thirdly, He was God when nothing had yet been created and only God existed. That was all in verse 1. In verse 2, we had our fourth confirmation. He was with God in the beginning, though God alone existed and nothing had been created. And now in verse 3, we have our fifth confirmation. He was the creator of all things, which the Bible says only God was, right? That's what John clarifies whenever he says all things were made through him. But the thing is, some people might hear that, say, okay, all things were created through him. And they might hear that and they might say, okay, well, how about this? God created the word and he gave the word the ability to create everything else. So if they're still not wanting to admit that the word is God, they can say, they'll find a loophole, right? They'll say, okay, God created the word, and he gave the word the ability to create everything else, and that's how it happened. And that's where we get our sixth confirmation, because not only does John say that all things were created through him, but then he clarifies, without him was not anything made that was made. So not only... Is he the creator of all things, but he is the only creator, right? Not anything was created. Even the word himself was not created. He has existed. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So John has clarified six times in the first three verses that the word is God. And I want you to realize that John is not pulling any punches. He is going from the beginning, and he is saying, hey, if you need to know one thing about this story, this is the introduction, this is the prologue. He is saying, if there's one thing you need to know, it is that there is this person who is more than a person. 
There is this word who is more than a word. There is this man who is more than a man. He is God himself. And that is what John is trying to hammer into our heads. And he's doing it again and again and again. So that whenever we actually encounter Jesus later on in chapter 1, we already know exactly who he is. And we're just asking John to prove it by the stories we read. John wants us to recognize that whoever the word character is, he is the same as God, yet distinct from God, and is the creator of everything that exists. And the purpose of this passage demonstrates that John is not merely attempting to introduce his gospel with this prologue. Rather, he is demonstrating and contextualizing his gospel to demonstrate that the story he's telling is not one that begins with a 30-year-old carpenter being baptized on the banks of the Jordan, or a miraculous birth in a cave in Bethlehem, or with an angelic proclamation and announcement to a virgin in Nazareth. His story does not begin there. Rather, the story of Jesus begins when the story of all things begins. That is what John is trying to demonstrate to us. When God said, let there be light, that was Jesus speaking. And that sets us up perfectly for verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Just as God spoke life into all creation by speaking light into the world, so life is found in the word, and that life is the light of men. Here we're introduced to two prevalent themes that will carry us through the entire Gospel of John. The themes of life and light. In Greek, those are the words zoe and phos. And John's introducing those here because that is what a good author does. You introduce some themes early on so people can watch for them throughout the rest of the text. So here we have two concepts of Jesus. In him was life. That's the first concept. And the second concept that life was the light of all mankind. We have the life, the zoe, and the light, the phos. Let's talk about the life. The term zoe doesn't refer so much to physical life as it does to spiritual life. Uh, in Greek, there is another word they could use to refer to physical life. That was the word bios. That's where we get like biology. Um, but this is the word zoe, which refers actually to spiritual life, the abundant life that you have internally that takes you throughout the the life that connects you to god right this is the immaterial aspect of living the part that relates to god that relates to others it's the part that will lead us into eternity john is saying that zoe this type of life is found in the word what john's pointing out is that jesus the word was not given life but rather was the giver of all life. In and of himself, he was self-existent. So we already have it established that the Word was not created, that he already existed before anything was created. And so now we have the clarification. How is this possible? Because in him was life, right? The only reason that the Word can provide life and existence to everything is because in him is life. The essence of what it means to live is found in this word figure that John is presenting to us. Here, then, would be our seventh confirmation that Jesus is God. 
Because here we see that he was self-existent when only God was self-existent. Who is the author of life? Go search the scriptures, search the Old Testament, search the New Testament. Who is the author of life? God. Which means that life has to be sourced in him. Yet here John is asserting that life is found in the word. In him was life. And so we have the confirmation for the seventh time that Jesus is God. When God refers to himself as the I am who I am in Exodus, that can be taken to be referring to Jesus. The God who existed before anything else existed. So whenever God identifies himself to Moses at the burning bush, you know, Moses says to him, who should I tell them sent me? What God has sent me to go free my people from Egypt? And God says, I am who I am. Basically what he's saying is, I am the God who exists. What other God is there? What name do you need? I am who I am. What other God is there to reference? There's only one God and I am that God. And that's exactly what God is getting across. He's the one who has existed from all time since before time began. Before time, space, and matter, this God already existed. And now we can see through John that the I am who I am is Jesus Christ. And we're going to get that reference multiple times throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus is actually going to give us seven I am statements wherein he identifies himself with God. And there's actually going to be a few times where he doesn't even give a description afterwards. Sometimes he'll say, like, I'm the bread of life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Stuff like that. But sometimes he will just turn to people and he will say, I am. Right? He will make some mind-blowing statements that will really get him in a lot of trouble because he will identify himself as God, as we will see as we work through the gospel. But for right now, I'm getting ahead of myself. But John's assertion goes beyond even this. Not only was life found in the Word, right, in the sense that he was self-existent, but because the Word has life in and of himself, he must likewise be the one to distribute life to all things. He is the reason why anything that lives lives. If there is abundant spiritual life, if there is eternal life, if there's any of those things, it comes from the word. Therefore, by saying in him was life, John is clarifying that Jesus is the agent of salvation, right? So not only did he create all things, but he is the only way that people will be saved. Later on in John chapter 14, we will have Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me, right? So he is the only way that people can become saved. He's the agent of salvation. Through him, men can be freed from the penalty of sin, death, and brought into life in God, which is salvation or eternal life. The implication is that life is found only in him and is found in no other, as is the universal and consistent testimony of Scripture. And so Jesus, the Word, He's the life, but he's also the light because we read in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. So what does that mean? Well, there's this guy named John MacArthur. I don't agree with him on everything. If you know me, you know that I don't agree with anybody on everything and I have strong opinions about pretty much everything. Uh, but John MacArthur, he actually has, um, he has a commentary series on the New Testament and I actually really like what he has to say in describing this. So rather than trying to formulate it in my own words, I'm just going to share with you what he said. As God is not separate from the word, but the same in essence, 
So life and light share the same essential properties, right? So he's showing how there's a connection between life and light. He continues, the light combines with life in a metaphor for the purpose of clarity and contrast. God's life is true and holy. Light is that truth and holiness manifest against the darkness of lies and sin. Intellectually, light refers to truth and darkness to falsehood. Morally, light refers to holiness and darkness to sin. So what MacArthur is trying to present here is that there is this connection between life and light. And what it does is meant to show the distinction between man and God. And interestingly, this isn't even the first time that the Bible makes this connection. If you go back to Psalm 36, you'll read this in verses 7 through 9. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. It's a really beautiful and poetic picture that once again connects life and light just as John is doing here. And so what John is saying whenever he says that in him was the life of light... Uh, let me rephrase that, sorry. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. Whenever John says that life was the light of all mankind, what he's saying is that when Jesus came into the world, all things were brought into light. He made things known. In being sinless... Jesus demonstrated the extent of our sin. In being perfect, Jesus brought to light the extent of our own imperfection. In being God, Jesus brought into light the extent of our own ungodliness. So whenever he shows up on the scene, people cannot avoid being brought into the light. And we're going to see this being brought up consistently again and again through the Gospel of John. In graciously providing life, Jesus demonstrated how much we deserve death. It's kind of like the darkness of night whenever you're away from the city and you're out in the country and you look up into the sky. The darker the night is, the brighter the light shines. Right? Whenever you see the stars in the sky, sometimes when you're in the middle of the city, you can't see the stars. But whenever it's so dark outside and you just look up, you can see the light. And whenever Jesus came into the world, he stepped into the darkness and he showed us how dark we truly were because we thought we were living in the light. And then Jesus comes and we see him and we're like, oh, wow, um, we had a totally wrong perception of what light was because we see him and we see the distinction. He's like a star in the nighttime sky. We thought we were, at, we thought we were dwelling in the middle of the daytime and we realized whenever he showed up, we're in the middle of the night. He came to shine a light on the path to eternal life, and because of his coming, that path is now available for all men. This isn't to say that all men receive it. Rather, we receive that light in varying degrees. Some will accept it, and some will reject it. Right? That's something, once again, we're going to see as a theme throughout the Gospel of John. There's going to be those who accept the light that Jesus offers them, and those are the people who believe in him, who trust in them, who give themselves to him. But there are also going to be those who reject him, and those are the ones who choose to dwell in darkness and who choose to not believe, who choose to not receive. The point is that the true light of man, true comprehension and clarity and satisfaction in this life is only found by life 
in the Word. If you want to know true life, if you want to know what it means to have love and joy and peace and all the fruits of the Spirit and all the spiritual blessings that are found in Christ, you have to be in Christ. And so if you want to taste true life and true light, it's only found in the Word. That is what John is clarifying here. Apart from Him, we are lost in darkness, but with Him and in Him, we walk in the light. In Christ, we have access to truth and holiness, and apart from Christ, we are doomed to falsehood and sin. But in Christ, we're freed from falsehood and sin. This brings us to our eighth and final assertion in this passage that Jesus is God in the flesh. Because here we have John proclaiming that Jesus is the light. Yet the universal and consistent testimony of Scripture is that all men are sinners, that no man is righteous, no, not one, and that all of us dwell in darkness. So, If that's the consistent testimony of Scripture, that all men dwell in darkness, yet Jesus shows up and He is the light of all men, who but God could provide light to a world dwelling in darkness? Who but the Creator could insert something new into creation? So right here we see that He was the light in a world corrupted by darkness. And so... To recap, we have eight confirmations in verses 1 through 4 that Jesus is God. Firstly, he was in the beginning when nothing had yet been created. Secondly, he was with God when only God existed. Thirdly, he was God when nothing had yet been created and only God existed. Fourthly, he was with God in the beginning, though God alone existed and nothing had been created. Fifthly, he was the creator of all things. Sixthly, he was the only creator of all things. Seventhly, he was self-existent even though God alone is self-existent. And eighth, he was the light in a world corrupted by darkness. In four verses, John has confirmed to us eight times that Jesus is God, which should give you a taste of how this gospel is hopefully going to rock your perception of Jesus and help you understand who he truly is. And so we're going to wrap up with one more verse. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. With this verse... John once again takes us back to the first page and the first paragraph in Genesis. We read this in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1 of Genesis. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. As God separated the light from the darkness, so when Christ came in the flesh, He came to separate the light from the darkness. And I know that all this light and darkness metaphor can be very metaphorical and it can be kind of confusing because sometimes you can get lost in the metaphor and a lot of times Christians, we take it for granted that people talk about light and darkness and stuff like that and we get what we mean, but sometimes people get confused. So what I want to do is I want to take this metaphor and try to make it simple to understand 
so that you can grasp it and you can have a visual image to associate with what John is saying here because in truth, it is actually a very simple concept. So I'll give you two examples. One example. Suppose that I were to turn off all the lights in this room that I'm in right now and then I would light a single match, right? When I lit that tiny match, not only would a little fireball appear on that match, but there would be an aura of light that would emanate from the match that would actually spread throughout the entire room. It might not be enough to light up the entire room. This is a pretty big room. But it would go beyond just the source of the light. The tiny flame from the little match would overcome the darkness. All right, that's what it would do. That's why John says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. He's referencing our everyday activities and points out how this is what we should expect whenever Jesus comes into the world. Just like a tiny match can give enough light to overpower this great darkness, so when Jesus came, the light overcame the darkness. Second example. All right, so suppose that right now, suppose that you're standing in one room and you're looking at a doorway that connects to another room on the other side. And suppose that in one of the rooms, the lights were turned off, and in the other room, the room you're standing in, the lights are turned on, right? So two rooms, one the lights off, one the lights are on, there's a doorway in between. Now tell me, which would overcome, the light or the darkness? Would the darkness overcome the light or would the light overcome the darkness? And what I mean by that is this. You have the two rooms, you have the doorway in between. Which one is receiving the things from the other? As in, do the shadows from the dark room fall into the room with the lights turned on, therefore darkening the room around it in a weird way? That, like, like you can, No, that's not what happens, right? I'm trying to fathom it and try to explain it to you. We can't even picture that, right? The shadows don't fall into another room and darken it. Rather, the light from the bright room would fall into the dark room and actually light up some of the things in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light will pour through the doorway and actually bring to light some of the things in the darkness. And that's exactly what is being claimed here with Jesus. Jesus was the one ray of light stepping into a world shrouded with darkness. Every single man is a slave to sin, until he comes to Christ. And that means every single man is an unrighteous and wicked sinner who dwells in darkness. The same is true with me before I came to Christ. All of us, that's the state of it. And I know that we don't like hearing that nowadays because we like this feel-good thing where we want to think that everybody is generally good. But let me tell you what sin is. Sin is anything not done in faith. Anything that falls short of the glory of God. God has a perfect standard and we fail to meet that perfect standard. And so by failing to meet that, we are darkness. And Jesus, the one true God, came in the flesh to dwell amongst us. And what we're going to see is that he was the one light shining in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. As we will see, people will oppose the light and try to subdue it. They will reject it and try to put it out. Yet the light of Jesus Christ will not be quenched. He is like a match that you cannot put out. Though people reject him, there are those who will accept him. And some in the darkness 
will come to light. Though most will not receive him, there are those who will. And I pray that you will be one of those. I pray that. I pray that over, the, if not now, I pray that over the course of this study, you will be one of those who receive him. Through Christ. Sorry, I'm, gonna read, I'm reading my notes here. Though Christ will be arrested and abused and murdered, he will rise on the third day, ascend to the Father, and invite each and every one of us into eternal life. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was but one light that shone in the darkness, and he lived on this world for just over 30, like just about over 30 years, about 33 years probably, one light in the midst of darkness who lived for 30 plus years. He was murdered. He rose. He ascended. He's only over 30 years. Yet here we are talking about him 2,000 years later. And he is currently the head of the body, which is the church, which has flipped the entire world upside down. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I pray that you will come to step into the light and I pray that through this message you might have a better understanding of who Jesus is and I hope that through this series you will come to understand more importantly his character and what he can do and what he has done and how worthy he is to be served. And I hope that the light will shine in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it in your life as well. In the next lesson, we will be introduced to the voice who introduces the word, and his message will be simple. Let there be light. I'm going to close this out in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much for all that you are. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. I pray that we will not lose the importance of this message, but that we will cling to it and go out into the world and proclaim it. Because we see here, God, that you sent your Son who was himself God and who is himself God and who now sits at your right hand and intercedes on our behalf. You sent him into this world to dwell amongst the darkness that we are. And that though we were plagued by this darkness, we could not overcome the light you provide. Lord, as we go out into this world, let us be lights in the darkness, proclaiming your glory to all who have ears to hear. And let us help them have eyes to see who you are, how worthy you are, and what you deserve. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your world, and we thank you so much for your word that came into the world. As we depart from here, let us not leave and go back to worldly living, but let us live for you, for your glory, for your honor, and for your praise. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen.